This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. Hello, and welcome to episode 51 of the Doctor Who podcast. We hope that you are all recovered after the week of content that we have showered upon you. Uh, I know that certainly one of us has had a bit of a lie down, but if you're back with us, it's good to have you back. Looking forward to delivering yet another sterling Doctor Who podcast. Hello, it's good to have you back. And uh, I look across the caravan and I say, hello, James. Hello, Tom. Well, it's, it's lovely to be here, but um, is there somebody missing? Yeah, it does feel like we've got uh, an awful lot of space to rattle around in. I think uh, we're missing a certain Australian. I think so. I think so. Trev, wherever you are, we hope you're having a great time. You worked really, really hard to get all the episodes out for last week. Thank you so much for that. Uh, and so you're taking a very well-earned rest. Indeed. So I'm afraid, listeners, you're stuck with just the dross. You're stuck with Tom and I. Um, and this time round, we're going to cover just a little piece of news. There's been some breaking news. And uh, it's actually quite rare that a piece of news breaks the same day that we're actually recording. It normally breaks just after we finished recording. <laughs> um, so, uh, so it's actually quite a good, good piece of timing there, really. Uh, Doctor Who is going to air on Christmas Day in America this year. Right. And that's the very, very first time that a Christmas special has been broadcast in the US on Christmas Day. So I think that's a, a major news story. I think it's a fantastic piece of negotiation from BBC America um, and possibly with the BBC. I'm not quite sure who else they would need to... Um, negotiate with but I think this is fantastic for fans and uh, will eliminate I think illegal downloads in the United States now clearly there may be other reasons as to why people want to download it through other means but it's going to take out a significant proportion of people downloading and and viewing this episode um, in innovative ways. I think you're right you know the other thing is is that this is happening now and it seems to be happening so quickly means that it's possible to do. So I wonder what the blocker was for it in the first place. No, I, I think that could be uh, the subject of a very long debate as well. Um, what, what I suspected when I first heard that the um, special was being fast-tracked to Australia, mm. I thought, ah, clearly there's been a breakthrough in... Um, in whatever was the problem and I always believe these kind of things or the roots of all of these things is money yeah um, I, I'm not quite sure in what context and I'm not quite sure whether you know the, the commercial discussions that have been going on between network operators and broadcasters and so on uh, have, have been changed or something has changed massively over the last year or so I did suspect that we were going to see a much quicker broadcast in America this year but that was predominantly because BBC America are heavily involved in the production of episodes one and two of series six Mm. Um, so much so that you've got the production crew um, being drafted in from BBC America and uh, it's going to be a very very uniquely produced story uh, the one that's set in Utah and I did wonder whether or not that was going to manifest itself in other ways as well so perhaps you know, BBC America are now working much closer with the BBC and the actual production crew, who knows. But whatever the reason, um, we've only got an announcement um, to await now, really, for Canada. Yeah. And uh, then, then we've got Canada, the UK, uh, Australia, 
and America all broadcasting the same episode within essentially 24 hours, give or take uh, the time differences. Oh, do you know, I have to ask, I wonder if there are any other TV shows that have ever had that treatment. I mean, because apart from national news events, I'm not sure that anything else would actually engender that sort of treatment. I think there was a simultaneous broadcast of one of the series of Lost. Okay. Because, I mean, that was that worked in reverse, clearly because it's an American production, uh, American networks got it first. But I think it may have been for Series 3 or possibly Series 4. It was transmitted within a couple of days mm. over here. I think that was on Sky. And uh, again, so, you know, progress does seem to be being made. But I, I guess, you know, if, if people had been making money out of delaying the broadcast in different countries, and I don't quite know how, but that's my assumption, or else I just don't think people would bother mm. putting up any kind of fight in terms of uh, delaying the broadcast, um, then clearly that problem's been overcome. I'm glad. To, I, so, I'm really glad for the simple reason that it's always lovely to watch uh, your favourite show on your TV with a good sound, with a good picture, nice and relaxed, rather than over rather than watching it on a on a computer monitor. Uh, for those, oh, absolutely, that, you know. absolutely, and particularly as this is a seasonal program. I mean, America, I know, have been watching Christmas specials at Easter. I know in the past that uh, Australia have been watching Christmas specials sometimes up to five months later in Canada they've only recently had Voyager the Damned broadcast and that was years after it was actually transmitted in the UK and it now looks like people are actually getting their act together and we as fans are certainly going to benefit from that and uh, it's going to be interesting because we're not going to be able to argue about this kind of thing at Gallifrey anymore or speculate um, on panels as to why there is such a difference in terms of uh, broadcasting times the world over because it seems to have at least been begun to be solved. Perfect. We like that very much. Thank you, man. Cool. All right, without any further ado, let's get into the meat and potatoes of this particular podcast, which is going to be feedback. You've been exceptionally busy when it comes to writing to us, so this time we're going to spend a little bit of attention going through some of the slightly longer pieces of feedback that you've been sending us. Now, we usually say just send in one or two lines, send in a couple of minutes by MP3, but this time we've got such good feedback covering a number of different subjects that Trev, Tom and I have talked about over the past couple of months, we thought that we would read out some of the longer messages as well. So thank you to everybody who's been sending in your feedback. Please keep it coming in. We really love getting feedback. Um, I'm not sure about you, Tom, but when I get a piece of feedback that's forwarded from Trev, you know, I do take the time out from work sometimes to sit there and read it. <laughs> and, uh, and then it suddenly, you know, realisation suddenly dawns, you know, people actually listen to us sometimes. So, uh, so if you can keep our egos inflated even more, listeners, that would be fantastic. Feedback at the Doctor Who podcast.com. And we're going to go straight into our first piece of feedback, which is from Lee. And that's Rory Pond on our forums. Uh, so from Lee, we've got, hello, DWP. Having just watched my Chameleon Collection DVDs, I thought I'd provide my comments for your consideration. King's Demons, well, it was a nice try. The whole point of the story is to introduce Chameleon as a companion, and if the robot had worked on set like it did in the demonstration for JNT and Eric Sayward, that would be fine. But it didn't, and it's clear in the story that it never would. 
<laughs> Failing even more miserably than the prop, oh dear, is Terence Dudley's <laughs> script. Evidently, he was so determined to introduce Chameleon, he failed to give the master a plausible scheme with which to employ it. How is impersonating the king in some remote area of England going to keep the real king still alive and well and ruling in London from signing the Magna Carta? And another thing, why would the master set his sights so low? This is a penny ante stuff for a renegade Time Lord. If not for Anthony Ailing's rock-solid performance, this entire story would have been better served by a work stoppage, thus preventing it from being filmed and sparing everybody the embarrassment. Perhaps I'm being a bit too harsh. No. <laughs> it isn't time in the Rani, for heaven's sake. But it's pretty lame, nevertheless. Yes, yeah, some interesting points there. Uh, and I think, Lee, perhaps you're uh, suffering from the same problem our Trev has sometimes. You don't actually say precisely what you mean. You're beating about the bush far <laughs> too much. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, I, I, I am jesting. And, and this is something that Trev and I talked about a little bit when we reviewed that box set. You know, is, is this scheme worthy of the master? And I think we agreed that it probably wasn't. But for me, it didn't really detract from enjoying the episode because I did. I did enjoy um, both episodes of The King's Demons. But I think what is interesting is the fact that they have downscaled the Master's ambitions fairly significantly here. Mm. Uh, I, I do think the story fundamentally is is watchable. Uh, and as you say, it is nowhere near as bad as Time and Arani. But um, <laughs> I'm not entirely certain anything else is as bad as Time and the Rani. Oh, come, but, uh, come, 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 come. I mean, time, we, we had this last week, actually. Time and the Rani's not great, <laughs> but it's not the worst story Doctor Who ever told. No, no, well, well we've been there already, and uh, I, I, I agree with you to a degree. But, but as I said, focusing on Lee's points here, mm. um, I'm, I'm not so sure the comedian was such an abject failure, you know, in every possible sense. I, I, I think clearly it wasn't a particularly practical prop, yeah. but it doesn't undermine the story. In fact, comedian is fairly central mm. uh, to the King's Demons, and there wouldn't really be the kind of story that we receive if comedian didn't work as effectively as he did in storytelling terms, at least as he does here so yeah failure of the prop clear um i wasn't actually aware that um it was demonstrated to jnt and eric saywood in a particularly effective fashion um all, all i can assume is that they were so carried away with what it looked like and the potential mm. that um practicalities and pragmatism took a back seat perhaps but um who knows that sounds about right i mean in fairness it's a pretty good costume romp i mean there are an awful lot of stories in doctor who where if you just tug a little bit heavily at some of the loose strands the whole thing collapses a little bit but at the same time it looks good there's some solid performances in it yes the master's motivation is a little bit suspect unless of course the the magna carta has far-reaching consequences uh, for the web of time who knows who can tell all we all we can definitely say is it was a it's a good hour or so on a sunday afternoon to spend with a cup of coffee and a couple of biscuits Absolutely. At least it's only a couple of episodes as opposed to four. And I think, Tom, what you, you, your point there, your particularly good retcon point, actually, let's say Magna Carta was a fixed point in time and space. <laughs> Therefore, it adds a little bit of gravitas to the Master's scheme as opposed to him just having a little bit of fun. Exactly so. Uh, so. Exactly so. Plus, we get, to hit, we, we get that lovely song that you pointed out as well. We sing in praise of total war. Always good. Indeed. <laughs> oh, thanks ever so much, Tom. That's gone straight back into my mind, and that's going to be pinging around for the next couple of days now. So. Terribly sorry. Anyway, um, Lee also sends in his opinion about Planet of Fire, and he says, thankfully, Planet of Fire is a satisfying adventure that manages to provide some actual character development for Turlo before writing him off the show. Perry isn't served as well in her debut, but other than a couple of shrill moments, she's more tolerable and obviously rather pleasant to look at. 
It's almost as though someone, Grimwade himself perhaps, or director Fiona Cummins, provided the bikini knowing it would offset other parts of her performance. But I really like Nicola Bryant. This is, just isn't her best active moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I know what you mean about Nicola Bryant's uh, acting talents, but at the same time, I don't think she was particularly, you know, terrible for any part of any story that she starred in. And she certainly grew more confident, I think, in her acting ability as, as time went on. And particularly some of the stories she was in with Colin Baker, I think, are very, very strong. And yeah. the dynamic between those two characters is certainly due to Nicola Bryant's portrayal. Yeah. Um, Resurrection, no, what's is it? What's the Dalek story, Colin Baker's uh, and Nicola Bryant starring? Revelation, Revelation, Revelation of the yeah. Daleks. One of my favourite stories of all Doctor Who, incidentally, and, and I think that that particular story just gets it so completely right, and as I said, that is down to, to Nicola Bryant. Mm. We have to remember this is her first TV acting role, and... To be honest, as a, as a companion's debut, again, there have been worse. Um, yeah, I'm trying to fight shy of talking too much about how well she fills the bikini, but it's <laughs> James, you're entirely right. Over the course of her tenure as a companion, she got better and better and better, right up until the end, which should have been a great exit for her, but was just slightly offset by that strange heart-shaped montage thing at the end of Trial of Time Lord. But no, mm, mm. When, you think, when you think of the limitations that Companions got, she seems to have understood what the limitations were and to have worked very well within them. Do you know, I watched the opening couple of scenes of The Caves of Androzani, and it's interesting where you think that if you've got the Planet of Fire and you've got the Caves of Androzani, pretty much all of her big finish output with Peter Davison is set between those two stories and I was subconsciously thinking okay by now she really knows the Doctor very very well and 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 her performance it must be said in that first episode of Case of Androzani is transparent enough to be able to actually superimpose a couple of years of travelling on what she's doing and it does explain why <laughs> Peter Davison and she seem to be actually a lot closer than they should have been in that period of time yeah no I, I think that um, I'd certainly agree Incredible theory as uh, as fan theories go, and when you consider Perry's continuity line, certainly within Big Finish, mm. and she meets Erimem and so on, and uh, goes through a significant amount with uh, the Fifth Doctor and Erimem, then yeah, it's quite plausible that um, she does have a very very close relationship with the Doctor by the time she gets to Caves of Androzani. And just talking about it, it's actually quite similar to the relationship the 11th Doctor develops with Amy Pond, yeah. uh, because certainly by The Beast Below, you've got the two characters very, very close, very confident in each other's company. Mm. And um, by the time we get to episode four or five, the Angel stories, Amy's saying lines like, Oh, I've never known you do that before, yeah. which again implies a very close relationship. So yeah, perhaps there are some parallels to be drawn between... Uh, the 11th Doctor and Amy and the 5th Doctor and Perry. True. Uh, Lee finishes up. He says, Despite the disappointment of the King's Demons as a story, I'm still pleased with my purchase. The presence of Anthony Ainley's master is reason enough to own it, and being something of a completist, I intend to own all the Davidson stories anyway, provided to entertain, manages to release them all in my lifetime, of course. The DVD extras are fun, and now that I've found a site that lists all the Easter eggs, I no longer have to wonder if I'm missing out on something. <laughs> yeah, and do you know, there's a whole episode of the Doctor Who podcast just waiting all about Easter eggs on DVDs. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think definitely. so. Yeah, we'll have, to, we'll have to visit that at some point in the future. Cool. Sorry to go on at length like that, Lee continues. Well, yeah, that's okay, Lee. Um, I hope some <laughs> portion of this will be usable on the podcast, but even if it isn't, it's always fun to discuss Classic Who with people appreciating 
appreciate it as much as you guys do. Well, that's certainly very true. The three of us are essentially classic Who fans. We all got into Doctor Who through what he's now referred to as a classic series. Of course, it wasn't at the time. It was the current series. And, uh, yeah, I think our love of Doctor Who, both past and present, is born out of a very close um, relationship with all of the characters, really, in the periods and eras that we grew up with. Yeah, I'll go with that. Right, okay, so the next piece of feedback we've got is from a fella called Steve Panozzo. Or is that Panozzo? I've got to be honest, though, Panozzo, I'm sure I've seen that name somewhere before, but that just might be me and my deja vu. Mm. Okay, so let's have a look. So, you're mostly spot on with your assessment of the necessity of VFX on Planet of Fire. So, by this we mean the extended special effects. Doing a special edition of the story was pointless, says Steve. Uh, If you want to do VFX on the story, do it on the original episodes as an option. Personally, I thought the story was perfectly fine as first transmitted. All right, fair enough. Steve goes on. Further, I thought the CGI sequences in the special edition of Enlightenment were awful. They looked cheap. Done by an amateur. I guess one of the growing groups of fans who are only really experienced with doing their own private projects on YouTube. Steve continues. What was done with the DVD of release of Ark in Space was brilliant. Optional effects that were seamlessly included in the four-part story. Rather than spending money on unnecessary effects in Planet of Fire, I would rather have spent their CGI money on Revenge of the Cybermen. The effect sequences for the cyber ships, the biggest bang in history sequence, etc., were appallingly realised, even by 1975 standards, and cry out for attention. That would have been obvious to me. Keep up the great work, guys! No, Well, well interesting. I think, uh, to be fair, when we're talking about the visual effects of... Uh, of the special edition on both uh, Enlightenment and Planet of Fire, yeah. um, I, I, I made my views quite clear when I reviewed them with Trev um, yeah, a few, yeah. few weeks ago now. I do agree fundamentally that they should have been presented as an option. Um, but what, what I don't necessarily agree with is um, any kind of belief that to entertain don't always pay a great deal of attention to their releases. I I think there are some stories from the classic series that clearly warrant more attention than others. And I think it's it's a reasonable assumption to make um, to think that there is a limited amount of money. I think you do generally get a making of documentary in, in, in some form or another. Occasionally they experiment with a format. But I think it's important to remember that fans of other TV series simply do not get the kind of features that Doctor Who fans are used to. And I think sometimes it's quite easy to become complacent. I really appreciate the fact that To Entertain do experiment occasionally. And let's face it, I mean, I'm not sure how many titles have actually been released now from the classic series, but they've only recut and re-edited two stories uh, in this way. And I I think it's wrong to to just criticise them and say their money should have been spent on something else. I'm, I'm sure in the future there will be other features that are novel and original that people will appreciate and they're never going to please all of the people all of the time um mm. but yeah I, I i think the arc in space point is a very valid one i think the cgi was excellent i think it enhanced the story mm. and i'm not entirely certain i would have liked that amount of money spent on a story like revenge of the cyberman yes i enjoyed it but it's hardly a classic and i don't know whether or not it would have warranted that amount of money being thrown at it, I was quite happy with the interviews and other special features that they put on that disc. Um, the, the one that stands out to me was the retrospective on the availability of videos and bootleg versions yeah. of, uh, of classic episodes. And Tom, you and I talked about that at some length, I think, uh, a few months ago. We did. And you know, Steve's got an interesting point. I mean, there are days when I would quite happily watch 
the original uh, transmission style stories of Doctor Who, warts and all, exactly as it was transmitted. But there are other occasions as well when I wanted to, I wanted to see the show as I saw it when I was a child. And you know, if you show the show to a seven-year-old, there are no strings, there's no wobbles, there's no bits of bolster wood. The whole thing is made of metal. It gleams, and it's, the spaceships are fantastic. So with Enlightenment, I do take the point that okay, in the in my memory, it may have been slightly different, but I was grateful for the chance to have a bit of an aid memoir, if you like. Mm. With the ships looking that little bit sleeker, with the whole race around the stars being slightly better realised, purely because I remember at the time thinking, yeah, I kind of get it. It would be nice to see it in widescreen. All thoughts to that <laughs> effect. And now I get to see it, I think, well, you know, full on. I know that there are other people who really want their uh, the original Doctor Who untainted, um, and. I know if that choice that choice is taken away from some people, then okay, you, you, they can get a bit antsy about it. But I think if you offered any director the chance to redo something with the benefit of better technology and better effect in a new century, they really wouldn't. Well, with a, with a couple of exceptions, I guess they they would all jump at the chance and say, "Well, okay, let's redo it and let's make it a lot better." In the way that Fiona Cumming has in this in in these cases, and said, "Well, look, it was a great vision. There were good stories to begin with. Let's just make them a little bit pacier." Um, yeah. Planet of Fire. Okay, the, I think you and Trev did point out a couple of a couple of instances where people should have been singed, being singed uh, <laughs> or burnt alive. Oh, burnt alive, exactly. But again, I, I think if it's if it's it's kept to a respectful minimum, and it's and it's just to you know just just to have just to, an aid to moving the story along and just and beefing up the graphics a little bit. Then then all good, all good really. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as I say, I remember Doctor Who being the sleekest, most modern-looking thing in the world. And when I look back at things like uh, Genesis of the Daleks now, I can okay, I can see the join. But and it's you know, but it's good to have a bit of help. I think for modern technology. Well, I think you know we, we look at all the different releases there have been of the five Doctors, and I've got to be honest. Every time it get every time it gets better and better. It's a, it's a great story, and while the technology exists, and if it's done in a in a less than intrusive way, then on we go. But I guess uh, everyone's definition of less than intrusive will always be slightly different. No, ab- absolutely spot on. I, I think uh, so long as the option is always going to be there to watch the original episode as it was broadcast then anything above and beyond um, the standard DVD extras, as far as I'm concerned, is very welcome. And I don't think it looks bad in any way, shape or form. Um, I know it changes the pace. I think it's deliberately intending to do that for Mm. both Enlightenment and the Planet of Fire. Mm. And it's supposed to be, and and this is the point that I did make uh, when we talked about it before, but it's it's a good point, so I'm going to say it again. Um, (laughs) I think uh, they're intended to draw fans of the new series into the old series gently. So you give them a kind of soft landing. And it's a 45, 50-minute cut of a story that, yes, I think from a classic fan's perspective could be seen as butchery <laughs> but I think looking at it as you know a, a fresh or looking at it through a fresh pair of eyes from someone who's used to their Doctor Who in the way that it's been told and the story's been told since 2005 it could be a very welcome introduction. I think you're right one of my favourite quotes is that nothing ages faster than a vision of the future and, yes. and, and if you have a chance to just buff up that old that 30 year old image to make it more even more futuristic and make, make it live for another 20 years bring it on. Absolutely and I'd like to make another point here. I mean, it, it, it's slightly slightly off the topic, if you like, from what we're talking about. But I, I think it actually, or this whole issue, this whole debate, if you like, about new effects, old effects, etc. Mm. I think it kind of puts a new kind of perspective on Doctor Who fandom. If you consider pre-2005, Doctor Who is one of those programmes whose audience 
grows up. Yeah. And as you grow up with a particular program, you start noticing different things about it. So like you say, Tom, when you're young and when you're a child, you've got the gleaming, gleaming spaceship. Mm. And in 20 years' time, when you view the same piece of footage, you can see it's clearly a fairy liquid bottle, painted perhaps. <laughs> you know. So therefore, you notice something different. And if you love the show, that kind of effect becomes endearing and it becomes, you know, well, it either becomes endearing or becomes very, very annoying and it can actually invade your um, enjoyment to the point whereby you can't enjoy it at the same level you did when you were a child. Now, we've got a slightly unique version of that now because not only have you got the classic fan who will go through that experience, you've got the brand new fans who are children and they're growing up with the new Doctor Who um, and their opinion and their vision of Doctor Who is what the production team are really plugged into, not ours. Yep. And we forget that sometimes. Yep. And when you've got the people at To Entertain trying to turn a fan-orientated product into something that's a little bit more accessible to the new fan base, yep. 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 then I think you are going to have a conflict. And the people who don't appreciate that are us, the classic Who fans. Well, yeah. And, um, yeah, so as I said, it's a, it, that's a long, drawn-out way of making a point. But... As far as I'm concerned, any kind of new material arising from the original transmission, the original series, mm. is is wonderful. It's it's an innovation, and so long as it doesn't absolutely mutilate um, or substitute the original broadcast, I really cannot see what the problem is. But yeah. I'm going on at length here. Really no, no, no. I, do, do you know, I think it's an important point because I totally agree with you. One of the things about Doctor Who is it it tends to be on the cutting edge of technologies uh, and certainly and, and of storytelling and ideas as well I mean who could have imagined you know who, who what else was like this in 1963 nothing and one of the great things about the show is yeah it does change it does evolve it does grab technology with both hands think about this this changing of the lead actor in 1966 think about the the use of handheld cameras uh, for the caves of Andrizani that was an, again and, and, and I'm missing out a huge number of firsts mm. and trials mm. even when we get to the DVD range the animation of, of episodes of the invasion brilliant stuff and now the remaking of episodes now I know that that Star Trek has used a couple of interesting technologies with inserting modern actors into old stories maybe you know Doctor Who hasn't done that just yet but it could be argued that Doctor Who doesn't have to because as I say the show is so used to first don't get me wrong Steve I think you've got a very valid point in saying well okay you know you might want to keep it the way it was or, or have it a little bit more subtle but all I can say is that for my for myself, this has never really jarred with me. If it was if it was really going to come come to me hard, I think I'd have complained somewhere around uh, the Dalek invasion of Earth. When, <laughs> but but you know, the Dalek invasion of Earth really needed a bit of work doing to it because you can see the threads holding up those flying saucers sometimes. And so, absolutely, and so, absolutely. And suddenly, when you've got the, uh, the the CGI spacecraft, they look cool. Steve, maybe your point is that in Dalek invasion of Earth, it's nice and subtle and it looks really really good. But with Planet of Fight, you didn't enjoy it, and it's a bit more, uh, it's a bit harder for you to swallow. I'll say that there's always going to be uh, space for all opinions, but personally personally I like seeing these stories given a bit of a shine and I think I can't be alone as well with hoping that at some point we see the animated uh, version of 10th planet episode 4 we've already seen yeah. I know I know we we've, we've already seen some lovely things uh, sort of reanimated if you like I Colin Baker in a dinner suit wandering around the TARDIS um the the Colin Baker regeneration instead of the uh, Sylvester McCoy one so 
the technology's evolving. It'll get smoother. It'll get better. And, well, you know, what, what, what can I say? I'm always surprised for a show about time travel how sometimes reticent people are about looking to the future. But there you go. <laughs> and I think that's probably very true because the majority of Classic Who fans are pretty much stuck in the past, to be honest. I, I'm guilty of that as well. And uh, there are times when I have to try and force myself to look at new Doctor Who through the actual target audience's eyes to try and appreciate what it is the production team is trying to achieve. And sometimes it's abundantly clear, and yet you can still find, I don't know, hours and hours on end on podcasts criticising, I don't know, a a throwaway line about a piece of continuity that was established, you know, in 1977, just for an example. But, uh, you know, that's that's us. That's why we're Doctor Who fans, and that's quite honestly why we... (laughs) just basically do what we do and uh, analyse everything to the nth degree and long may it continue. Perfect. I think it's time to move on. (laughs) I think you're probably right. (laughs) Okay, well, following that little discussion, we have a bit of audio feedback from listener Darth Skeptical. All right, Darth, take it away. Wow, Trev, I never ever had you down as a conservative, but I guess... Oh, hi, I'm Darth Skeptical, by the way. I guess that when it comes to the question of Doctor Who DVDs and the Fiona Cumming re-edits of Enlightenment and Planet of Fire, conservative doesn't even come close to you. Troglodyte would probably be a better word. Because, you know, the idea, as near as I can figure it out, originated with Davison himself. In a couple of his earliest commentaries, starting with, I think, Earthshock, there's this running theme with him and Janet Fielding about how to trim the fat and convert a serial into a longish episode of 21st century television. Thus, to my mind, these two new versions are about following through on that. And it's rather nice to see an extra feature that was seemingly inspired by the spontaneous conversation on a commentary. I mean, if the doctor himself wants to see a different cut of his own work. Who are we to deny him? And it is absolutely worth it. Whether you like the end results or not, the experiment is a noble one. I believe you used the word abomination to describe it, and then suggested that all that was done was a little chopping here, a crappy new special effect there, and a 5.1 mix layered over the whole mess. But That's hardly fair, is it? Both of these were conscientious efforts, yes, as with all things, within budget, to retell the stories in a more modern way. If you really compare the two versions carefully, you'll see an awful lot of changes. Care was actually taken in these exercises, and were you not so incredibly wedded to the originals, due in small, well, due in no small measure to childhood memories, you'd see that the narrative flow is absolutely enhanced. These stories don't lose a damn thing in the translation. Well, except for the fat, that is. I mean, sure, you can see the budgetary limitations. Yes, you can pick on the added fire plume. But come on, this is a recut of a 1980s story. So many original visual effects were crappy, too. What's the greater offense? People not reacting to nearby fire, or Adric pre-reacting to an explosion in Earthshock? And indeed, the fact that fire has these plumes that no one properly reacts to is a valuable result of this exercise. It was an interesting idea that didn't quite come off. So was the Merka. Lesson learned. If 
it had a bigger budget. Cumming could probably have afforded to order up some test footage before she committed to the plume additions, or she could have scrapped some that were particularly unconvincing. My guess, and admittedly it is just a guess, is that she committed to the idea in the planning stages, but then couldn't afford to just back away from the idea once she saw the finished result. The financial inability to find, by trial and error, the best possible match for a scene doesn't mean it's wrong to try to improve a scene. I think we can become so attached to the past that we don't really see the benefit of trying something new. To my eye, being probably as familiar as you with the originals, I much prefer the coming re-edits of both of these stories. Narratively, they are far stronger than their episodic cousins. As James pointed out, you can successfully show these versions to younger viewers. They feel like much closer relatives to the BBC Whale Show than anything else in Two Entertain's back catalog. They thus prove Davison right in his precipitating commentary theory. You can convert an old serial into a modern episode with no loss of story. In fact, there's so much bloat in the serial versions that you can even have a little room to film all new footage that improves the narrative, as was done with the teaser to fire. They also prove Moffat right when he says Davison was the precursor for the modern doctor. You can really see his tenantness for lack of a better word, better in the re-edits than in the serialized versions. You also said something else, Trev. You also noted that the money spent on these could have been spent animating a lost episode. Well, you know, in the strict sense that every little helps, sure, that's true. But there's no way that the budget for a re-edit is anything close to the budget for completely animating an episode. Were that true, we'd obviously have the Tenth Planet Part 4 by now. Moreover, they are entirely different exercises. One has people who never even saw the episodes, hand-drawing them from camera scripts and telesnaps. The other allows the serial's director to recut them with the wisdom she's gained since the 1980s. Nevertheless. Although they are different creative challenges, they do share one very big thing in common. Both are fakes. If you were arguing that the money used to make the new Enlightenment was preventing a surviving Troughton episode from being restored, I might be with you. But you're really saying this fake is better than that fake, and that is where you totally lose me. It is as legitimate an exercise to recut a Davison episode with a modern eye as it is to have modern animators draw a Troughton episode blind. Oh, fantastic. Now, that's what I call a really, really good piece of feedback. Thank you very much indeed, Darth Skeptical. Clearly, the main reason as to why it was a good piece of feedback is because you agreed with me, which is <laughs> one of the most guaranteed ways in order to get your piece of feedback played on the podcast. But no, seriously, thanks again, Darth. Fantastic piece of feedback. All right, moving on to some general feedback now. We've received a very short message from someone who calls themselves Theta Sigma. Thank you very much, Theta Sigma, for sending in your thoughts. He particularly enjoyed the Ian McNeese interview. Um, and 
so did I, I have to say, but that's probably because I was there talking to him. Um, anyway, Theta <laughs> says, I want to say how much I enjoyed the Ian McNeese interview. It brought back some wonderful memories of my meeting him at the Bad Wolf Convention in Birmingham earlier this year. He was one of the most down-to-earth people I've ever met and showed as much interest in me as I did in him. He spoke about his appearances in Doctor Who with huge affection. I really hope you'll be able to make another appearance on Doctor Who in the future and yeah i mean i i completely agree he is an exceptionally down-to-earth man for well especially when you take into account the success that he's had and some of the hollywood films that he's starred in mm. he's got every reason in the world to be as arrogant and as uh inaccessible as as possible but he's positively welcomed his newfound fame in Doctor Who, and he's attending a couple more conventions uh, stateside anyway. He's going to be appearing at Chicago TARDIS, I think that's in a couple of weeks, that's over the Thanksgiving weekend. Excellent. And he's also going to be at Gallifrey 22 next February, so uh, Trev and I should be able to catch up with him. But he's an absolutely delightful guy, and um, if you happen to walk past him in the street, you, 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 and, and he does walk around in the street, um, you know, he walked to the Globe Theatre from where he was staying in London, um, you know, you, you wouldn't give him a second look because he just looks like an ordinary normal person. And that's because he seems to be. <laughs> Maybe he isn't really, but he gives the impression of being an exceptionally normal person. No, I think you're right. Um, I, I was really, really, really grateful with how uh, how generous and kind and normal, apart from anything else, the the actors at Big Finish were uh, a few weeks ago. Um, and I think I mentioned it in uh, in episode fifty, particularly Sylvester McCoy. You know, there's a man who, as you just with a, just as you say with Ian McNeese, there's somebody there who could be um, difficult and stroppy if they wanted to, but they're not. They you know, they love the work that they do. They're really accessible people. They want to talk to you about it. And I think mm. as long as you approach people and you're open and honest and reasonable, then they tend to be open, and honest, and reasonable back. I'm thinking back to James. You might remember this. Do you remember? Do you remember going um, along to Hooverville? Mm. Uh, and we had and Katie Do indeed exactly and, and there was Deborah Watling walking about and being friendly Sophie Aldred what a lovely woman and I, I think I think that was something about you Tom let's face it they were following <laughs> you around <laughs> <laughs> maybe I should go dressed as Toberman next time that might be <laughs> um, but I, I was really impressed by Katie Manning as well she's just really very friendly and open to fans which is a great yeah. thing no, it, it is good, and quite honestly, I mean, I, I think it's no secret, and I'm perfectly happy to say this, that, uh, you know, Doctor Who fandom can be a little bit scary sometimes, and I, I and I think that there are certain elements who do take their Doctor Who exceptionally seriously, oh, yeah, and I, I think that can be somewhat off-putting sometimes to all stars, and there are times when, I, I don't know about you, Tom, but when I've interviewed people, when I've approached stars at conventions, mm. you see a worried look in their eye. Right to start with, and they suss you out. They try and suss you out. They're thinking, you know, to use your terminology, are you sane and do you wash? And <laughs> once, once they've made that call, once they've made that judgment and they've decided that you're okay, then I agree with everything you say. They are fundamentally, exceptionally down-to-earth and normal and human. And I think that is actually in part due to the way the BBC has always made it's programmes. It's always been done on a budget. Doctor Who has always been done on a budget. It hasn't got time for airs and graces. And I think some of the more well-known individuals and um, actors who have starred in the new series, I'm thinking of Ian McNeese, and I'm also thinking of, uh, oh, what's that name? Guy's name who played the Master just before he regenerated into John Sim. Derek Jacobi. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, absolute massive actors. Mm. Not physically, but, you know, in, in terms <laughs> of stature. You know, the, the, these are huge, huge stars. And they almost welcome 
the opportunity of just to you know get down and dirty, talk with the fans, and uh, both of those individuals have thoroughly welcomed the the, the fan circuit and. You know, I think it's great. Derek Jacobi at a Doctor Who convention. He's been on at least two or three now. Who'd have thought? Mm, exactly so. But but again, I suppose one of the things about being an actor is that you want to relate to people. You want to tell a story. You want to express. And as long as uh, you as long as you you go along with that, and re- I think primarily just realise after the age of about ten that these are actors doing a job, then everything's yeah. well and good. Um, it, it's all. It was really interesting to see certainly Sophie Aldred being a bit acy to people <laughs> under the age of 10 and being like a very a very sympathetic and very very warm actress to people over that age and that's you know, that's, mm. that's wicked that's, that's exactly what you want from from uh, from your heroes i mean there is that thing that says you should never meet your heroes but uh, i've got to be honest i i just loved meeting Sylvester McCoy it was great and again he he did a lot of work with calming me down uh, <laughs> nothing nothing direct but just being nice and even and honest and listening to the questions that was fabulous i thought that was great <laughs> well you, you you were clearly calm enough to correct him um, in, in terms of who wrote the hobbits it wasn't actually aa milne all right let's move on now you may remember i'm not sure if you remember tom because this conversation that you trev and i had wasn't particularly memorable it was about something that's been now termed as regenerate yeah yeah you remember that conversation? Hasn't slipped your mind? No, no, it's coming back to me slowly. Ah, well, towards the end of that conversation, we asked the listeners to send in their thoughts on our thirty-minute rant, uh, essentially, and they've they've obliged. <laughs> they've rant. obliged. Um, we're going to start with uh, a chap called Wes. Thanks very much indeed, Wes, for for spending the time putting your thoughts together. He says, "You guys asked for feedback on your thirty-minute post-episode argument." So here goes. Was it an argument? It was It was a lively debate, shall we say. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Oh, great. I'm tempted to finish that piece of feedback right there. <laughs> but he does, he does continue. When the subject of an episode is the classic series or something related like Big Finish audios, interviews or DVD releases from Two Entertainment. In those cases, the podcast is always a must listen. And I enjoy the opinions of and chemistry between all three hosts. You guys are fantastic. Oh, where's I like you? <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, <clears throat> oh, I knew it was too good to be true. When discussing the new series, a lot of times I tend to tune out or even skip an episode because there often exists a level of criticism, particularly from Trevor. Sorry, Trev that no episode from the classic series could possibly withstand and therefore seems unfair to apply to the new series. Oh, have you heard Trev's review of Delta and the Bannerman? Just to put that into perspective, <laughs> Trev, Trev gives absolutely every episode the same kind of assessment. He is incredibly consistent in his views and I think that's irrespective of whether it's classic or new series. And um, I, I think perhaps it'd be easier for us to make the case for Trev here rather than Trev actually do it himself. <laughs> but, uh, but, but I think the three of us, as, as we've said before already from this podcast, are essentially classic Who fans. And therefore, from time to time, we are going to be disappointed with what the new production crew do with the new series. And I don't really make an apology for that. Um, we, we certainly draw attention to all of the positive aspects of the new series that we enjoy. And I think, Tom, it's true to say that you've you've been exceptionally excited about some of the new episodes. Yeah, like it. it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. Um, Wes puts his comments into, into context. He says, in this case, it's Trevor's willingness to completely excuse classic nonsense like the idea of Doctor Seven being God. 
whilst reacting very angrily to RTD's intent in creating a throwaway line that I believe fans should have got a good chuckle out of, rather than being upset about. And if RTD was having a laugh at fans' expense, I'm not sure we don't deserve it. Mm. It might even be healthy to occasionally be reminded not to take things like perceived slights against canon so seriously. And yeah, I, I do fundamentally agree, and I think Trevor would really t- as well, to be honest with you. I mean, he wasn't talking about the line in the episode. He was slightly put out by the interview RTD gave about that particular line yeah. after broadcast. Yeah, and understandably so too. One of the things that I, th- I think is certainly true, in fact, if I, if I can be a per- permitted to have a, a slight diversion, um, one of the things that really made me excited about being part of the podcast was the was the chance to actually interact with someone as passionate and knowledgeable about Doctor Who as Trevor actually is. Um, you know, he does a lot of work for the podcast and he's got a lot of interesting opinions. And to be honest, one of the great things about him is he's so consistent and you know that he felt insult personally insulted, uh, it seemed, by RTD is really just an indication of how uh, passionately and how and how closely he feels the show belongs to him, which I think which, which is good. You know, if you, you know why would you why would you give your time? Why would you why would you give your imagination to something which you didn't feel that you had some sort of investment in? So I can hmm. see I, I I genuinely see where Trev's coming from with this. It's just I don't necessarily agree. But that said, um, if I didn't want to spend time talking to him about his opinion, then we wouldn't have made fifty podcasts. You know, <laughs> well, pre- precisely so. And uh, I, I think it is good sometimes to to have that kind of conflict if you like and I think that's one of the things that Wes points out that he enjoys I mean he refers to it as chemistry and it's certainly true to say that the three of us have very very different views at times of of the same part of Doctor Who and I think that's part of why I enjoy being part of the podcast so much because I love pointing out where I disagree with both Tom and Trev. Wes, Wes finishes up and he says anyway sorry for carrying on so long I know you want to ask for a couple of lines, and I'd like to reiterate that in spite of any minor criticism in this letter, I think you guys are great and I love the show. Trev, James, Tom, thank you so much for all the hard work. No problem at all, Wes. Thanks very much for spending the time sending your thoughts in. And on to... Onto a piece of feedback all the way from Ohio. Yeah, let's have a look. This comes from Laura Valensky. Laura, I hope I'm saying your name correctly. So, Laura says, Trev, you seem to take your Doctor Who way too seriously. Uh, after listening, I'd have to say that you came into the discussion assuming that RTD is the bad guy, so he's out to insult you or the serious fan. Uh, I tend to avoid the interviews and extraneous things related to Doctor Who, so I can be surprised by things in episodes. Though I do listen to your podcast and Big Finish regularly. Been a subscriber for 10 years. Good on you. I would Consider myself a serious fan. Troughton is my favourite. Uh, and I'm not at all insulted by his comments as you read them. I think the guy's got a sense of humour and some fans will take anything he says poorly. In jest or not, just because they don't like him. Oh, uh, Laura says that she can't say she cares either way, just as long as the stories are good. Um, I think this is pretty much what we said with the with the last piece of feedback. First of all, thank you very much for, for taking the trouble to email in, Laura. Really appreciate that. But again, I think what we've got is part of part of the joy of the DWP is you've got the three of us with three very different opinions, and for each one of us, for each one each opinion that we have, I think there will be a good number of of, uh, of new and classic series fans that feel the same way. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the discussion's already part of the podcast feed, so we can all go back and listen to it if we want to. And as I say, I mean, I, I think, yeah, Trev's got every right to have those opinions, but at the same time, I don't necessarily agree. But Laura, I think you're very much the same as I am in this respect. Doctor Who is just an entertainment, but it's one of the best entertainments ever conceived. <laughs> I've got nothing to add. <laughs> that one, I think, I think that's great. Mm. 
Well, I think that just about wraps up this episode of the Doctor Who podcast. I have to say it's been real fun just been going through your opinions and thoughts on on both what you hear us talk about and uh, and your thoughts and opinions on Doctor Who itself. It, it really makes the podcast come alive for me when uh, when I go through your feedback, guys. So thanks ever so much for sending in so many brilliant thoughts and opinions. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, of course, once again, if you get a chance, do drop into the Doctor Who podcast forums. But for now, for episode 51, I have to say that it's goodbye from me. And of course, goodbye from him. Oh, sorry, that's me, isn't it? Yeah. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. See you soon. Bye. You confused me there, Tom, you see. That's all very confusing. <laughs> That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.